So I'm going to have a really hard time this morning because the topic is on millennialism and I can't pronounce millennialism. And then when I get to all millennialism and post-millennialism and premillennialism and panmillennialism, I'm going to have a bit of a struggle. And uh, the more I mess up, the more uh, intimidated I get and the worse I do. So I just let you know that's the word. It's on your notes, I think. So you'll know what I'm saying even if I don't say it right, uh, pronounce it correctly. So we have been talking in this class, we spent quite a bit of time on hermeneutics and some of you probably wondered, what's that got to do with prophecy? Well, it has a lot to do with prophecy because the hermeneutical system that you use is the, I mean, it, it's, it's really everything in determining whether you end up over here or over here in your final teaching view of, of prophecy. And we're going to see that this morning as we look at uh, some various areas. We're going to get into the um, meat of prophecy and look at the various views that there are out there and why there are these views. And so we talked about the literal method of interpreting the Bible as opposed to the allegorical method. And I repeated several times, the literal method is the smart way to read the Bible. It's the right way to read the Bible. The allegorical way is stupid. I had you repeat that after me several times. You can end up any place uh, if you just make, uh, uh, interpret the Bible almost any way you want if you use the allegorical method. Now, the literal method assumes that there's figures of speech. Uh, there's, it assumes that there's metaphors and that there's typology. And so one of the things we do as we move through uh, the book of Revelation and the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel as we recognize that there is uh, metaphor and typology in the passages, we then determine which is literal and which is using a figure of speech, which is it's easy. It's really not that difficult to do. When I say Jesus is the Lamb of God, I don't think any of you think of a sheep. You understand what that term Lamb of God means that it's a figure of speech, illustrates his sacrificial death on the cross. And so that's a common thing in the Bible, especially in uh, areas that are dealing with prophecy. Figures of speech, uh, metaphors, typology are regular. But it's fairly obvious to see Jesus is the Lamb of God, uh, what that means. And so you understand a figure of speech literally. You allow for that. But when you get carried away with making things um, figurative, then you're going to lose the ability to understand what it means. We're going to look at the major passage in the Bible this morning where this, is, this happened. So let me read to you Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Now, the, the issue is, is the thousand years the kingdom of God, His ruling on the earth, is it a literal kingdom on the earth for a thousand years or is it figurative? That's the big deal. That separates every view that there is, that one question. So, Revelations, and so I'm reading through this. You ask yourself the question, does this sound literal, that is the thousand years, or does it sound figurative in the way it's written? I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss, a great chain in his hand. 
he laid hold of the dragon. Now we understand what that means, don't we? Dragon, that's the devil. And so it's a figure of speech, as it were. The serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan. Now he basically gives all the words there so we know. And bound him for a thousand years. Bound him for a thousand years. Is that a literal thousand years? Sounds like it. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that, the, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their, testi of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That thousand years is the same thousand years that the devil is bound, is in the abyss. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Is that a literal earth or a figurative earth? Sounds literal to me. Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Sand of the seashore. Is that a figure of speech? Yeah, it is. We understand what that means. It means a lot. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever. So this is the passage that is the critical point. When I was riding my bicycle a couple of years ago, we went down to the Grand Canyon, then we went up to Yellowstone, then we came back home, about a 4,000-mile trip, and uh, <clears throat> took about six weeks to do. And when we were in Yellowstone, I was standing, we went along the road and saw a sign, there was a lake there, not a big lake. And this lake had a unique uh, thing about it. You've probably been there to Yellowstone and seen it. I forget the name of the lake, I think it starts with an I. But at that end of the lake, the water flows out, and it ends up in the Mississippi River and eventually ends up in the Atlantic Ocean. This end of the lake, the water went out, and it ended up in the Snake River, the Columbia River, and the Pacific Ocean. One little lake, two destinations, long ways away. So I stood right in the middle of the lake and spit in it. I thought, half of my spit's going to the Atlantic, half of my spit's going to the Pacific. Kind of depends on where I'm at, uh, which direction it goes. And so this is the, that lake right here, this passage. It, it basically, did, what you do with this passage is going to determine where you end up theologically uh, in regards to prophecy. Is it a literal thousand years? Is it a literal kingdom? Is it on a literal earth or not? And so we use the literal system as much as we can. Number one in your notes, the literal method of interpreting the Bible is the right method, unless it is obvious. 
that a metaphor is being used in the Old Testament or a metaphor or typology in the New. <clears throat> now, as you read, it's, if you pay attention, it's not that difficult to discern which is which. Uh, you can tell when a figure of speech is being used. You can tell when it's literal. And so the word thousand years is used six times in ten verses. As you read through that a dozen times, ask yourself the question, is this literal or is it figurative? Is it literal? Now, the reason sometimes people will say it's figurative is because in 1 Peter 3, 8, a statement is made that with God, a, a, a thousand years is like a day. Well, that's not setting us up for the fact that a thousand years isn't a thousand years in other places. It's just talking about God's uh, uh, time is no big deal with God. And so in that sense, it's a figure of speech. So we're going to go with literal in that passage. Number two, if the Scripture passage makes sense using the plain sense, seek no other sense because the result will be nonsense. <laughs> that's not original with me. I think that's been around for a thousand years. Thousand years. Oh, I'm using that figuratively there, by the way. <clears throat> so if it makes sense when you read it, thousand years, you stay with that. Number three, the use of a thousand years six times in Revelation 20 appears to be a literal thousand years. So we're just going to make the declaration for this class that it's a literal thousand years. And that is going to make all the difference in the world whether we end up in the Atlantic or the Pacific in the sense of our theological view in regards to prophecy. Now, we're going to talk about three major views uh, this morning. We're going to talk about the premillennial view, the all-millennial view, and the post-millennial view. And then at the end, for good measure, we're going to throw in the pan-millennial view. And, uh, hey, like I, I pronounced it right every time there, didn't I? It was because I said millennial and not millennialism. Millennialism is where I get in trouble, so we'll stick with millennium. Uh, number four, there is nothing in the context in Revelations that suggests that the term thousand years is figurative rather than literal. Now, often uh, our view, and we talked about the word eisegesis as opposed to exegesis, that is, when you come with preconceived ideas and um, and teaching about Scripture, you bring those with you, and then it colors your future interpretation. And it's difficult not to do that, but historically, 2,000 years of church history, things have gotten taught, and they get into the church, and they get into our teaching, and we hear it when we're young, and we take it as gospel, and so it flavors our understanding of the Bible. I read on, uh, online some teachings about prophecy and where they'll have comments at the end. And there's some pretty mean, nasty comments made by people who have differing views in the area of prophecy, like, you've got to be stupid to believe that view. Uh, and they get pretty vicious on communicating uh, what their view is. And as I read these various things, I recognize that there's a tradition there been around for years that they have been taught that they're locked into, and everything is flavored by that particular view. And so it's hard sometimes to say, okay, what does the Bible say? 
What does it say? What's it teach right on without being controlled by or influenced by what we've gotten in the past? Um, and so this is an area which we're going to have some, a lot of that show up. Number five, the main promise to Israel in the Abrahamic covenant is the land of Canaan. So the key questions, the big deals is, is the kingdom that's two-thirds of prophecy in the Old Testament, two-thirds of prophecy in the Old Testament, two-thirds of the Bible is prophecy, and two-thirds of that is all about the kingdom, the kingdom. Uh, at the end of the book of Matthew, the disciples said to Jesus, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel now? And Jesus said, ah, I'm not going to tell you. The kingdom was the big deal to the nation of Israel. It's the big deal all through prophecy. The kingdom. Are we talking literal kingdom on a literal earth for a thousand years? Uh, and so the other views say, no, it's not literal. It's figurative. And the view is that we are in the kingdom now, here. It's been going on since Jesus went to heaven. And we, the church, are the kingdom so the other question is the big turning thing. Is the nation of Israel still part of the plan of God or did they get kicked out when they crucified Jesus? So most two-thirds of denominations in the United States, what we would call evangelical, Bible-believing denominations, believe that Israel got kicked out of the plan of God when they crucified Jesus and rejected Him as their Messiah. If not then, then later because they refused to accept Him as their Messiah as you go through the book of Acts. That Israel is out. The church is now receiving all the promises that are Israel is called replacement theology. And so that's a key question. Is Israel in or are they out? Uh, is the kingdom literal on this earth or is it figurative uh, Jesus ruling from heaven through the church that uh, we're in the kingdom now? And uh, we're going to look at those views, but uh, again, you're in the Atlantic or the Pacific on this one in the sense of the gap between them that exists. Um, number six, there are hundreds of Old Testament prophecies that promise that the nation of Israel will inherit the land of Canaan. And hundreds is literal. There are lots, many, whole sections of, and chapters in Isaiah and Ezekiel that Israel will inherit uh, the land. Israel will inherit the land. So if Israel is not in the picture anymore, uh, who cares about the land? We'll see that. Number seven, with all the history in the Old Testament. So you know the story about Moses because you've seen it on television in a couple of movies. <laughs> uh, Israel is in Egypt and they're slaves. They've been there 400 years. Moses comes along and, and they, they leave Egypt. They cross the Red Sea on dry land. There's the 10 plagues. And then they go through the wilderness. Where are they headed? Where's Moses taking them anyway? To Florida? He's taking them to the promised land. The promised land, the land that God promised them, Abraham, part of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham, walk around this land. Every place your foot trods, I will give to you forever. Abrahamic covenant was the promise of land of real estate. 
Now, because they left Egypt, crossed the, the desert and the wilderness, 40 years they were there, they finally entered into the promised land. Joshua talks about conquering the promised land. Was that literal? That land that they conquered? Sure it was. There's a, yeah, there's Jerusalem. There's, I mean, the description of the country, it's all literal. And so if all of that was literal, then why wouldn't the promises, the prophecies made to Israel regarding property, why would it be any different? Uh, it's, it's obvious that the promise of a literal, well-defined piece of real estate is what was intended in the Abrahamic covenant. Literal, well-defined borders but real estate is what was intended for in the Abrahamic covenant. The book of Ezekiel, uh, the whole last third of the book of Ezekiel, describes the borders of the promised land, where each of the tribes would live, where the temple would be located, the size of the temple, what it looked like. Uh, and as you read through that, it becomes obvious reading it. This is a literal description of a literal piece of real estate that the nation of Israel will someday be on. Number eight, because of Augustine's teaching, anti-Semitism and replacement theology became the standard theology of the church. Now, Augustine was a theologian. He was a major uh, figure, and he wrote a book called The City of God. And it's stated by many that The City of God is the second most influential book in all of um, Christianity, second only to the Bible, in the influence it had and still has. And so he wrote this major work. It's a big book. And it's a history from Genesis to the end of the story. It's a philosophy of history. And uh, he talks about two cities, the city of the world, the city of heaven, or the city of God. And as he goes through this, he concludes with the final place being uh, the city of God in heaven, not on earth, a kingdom in heaven, not on earth, and Jesus reigns from heaven, not on earth. Uh, the nation of Israel are gone, dead, nothing. Uh, they don't inherit anything. It's the church that is now the people of God inheriting all the promises of God. And so he put that all in that book, in that work, City of God, Augustine, and that's been predominant ever since. The Catholic Church, that's their main theologian as far as their theology goes, especially on the area of eschatology and prophecy. And then when the Reformation took place, most of the Reformers adopted Augustine's view. Uh, everything that he wrote, he became the one that he was their theologian, their teacher, as it were. <clears throat> Number nine, once replacement theology became the accepted doctrine of the church, the promise of land to the church became, uh, made no sense and wasn't very attractive to Gentile believers anyway. So the nation of Israel leaves Egypt, goes to the promised land. But now they're out of the picture. So all the description of the promised land of, of uh the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee and, the, and Jerusalem. Most of you haven't even been there. If I'm going to inherit some real estate, maybe Florida. 
I don't go to Egypt. I mean, uh, Israel. Number 10, Augustine commented that the land of Palestine was nothing but a big sand pile. He commented, I don't know how those camels live there. There's nothing but sand to eat. It wasn't a particularly attractive place back in those days in the sense of real estate, um, place to retire, place to live forever and ever and ever. It's like, who wants to live there? Number 11, once the land was spiritualized, it wasn't long before the thousand years was as well. So there isn't a really a promised land, and there isn't really a thousand years, and the uh, nation of Israel is no longer the people of God. Those are all spiritualized. And uh, your eschatology becomes fairly simple. Jesus dies, goes to heaven, and from heaven on his throne, he rules on the, on the earth, and he does that through believers, through the church. We are the kingdom of God, and we go along, and some point and some time in the future, then everything ends and we all go to heaven. And so most of the details of what we talk about of tribulation and rapture and the second coming and the kingdom, they're all rolled up in one and pretty much just in a single event uh, that ends. So you start with Jesus coming to the earth and then you have the church and then uh, everything ends, sinners go to hell, Christians go to heaven, that's it. Simple, not much detail but it misses a lot of what's in the Bible in the sense of the promises of God. <clears throat> Number 12, the view that Augustine developed was called amillennialism, which became the theology, the Catholic Church, and most of the Reformers. The view of Augustine that he developed was called amillennialism. Now, what that means, the A is an antithesis which means no millennial, no millennium. In other words, a thousand years isn't real. It's not literal. Uh, there's no kingdom that's literal. And so the A means no, not, zero. And so today, two-thirds of the denominations that you drive by churches will be all millennial. And you hear it in a lot of songs, uh, a lot of worship songs that are contemporary worship songs you will hear in there. If you hear about the church, the kingdom, and look at the words, you'll see that they make the point that the kingdom is now. Now, there is a sense in which we, uh, Jesus is ruling, but the kingdom, as it's used all through the Bible in 90% of the events, is a literal place and literal time and it hasn't happened yet, except in all-millennial theology. Thirteen today, most denominations are all-millennial in their theology. So as I was studying this and writing it down, there's this struggle in me in the sense of how much detail do you care about? How much detail matters to you? Because I know if there's too much, it gets confusing. And so the goal that I have is to make this clear because it's the foundation. 
Where a person is on these three positions will determine everything else about their theology in regards to prophecy. Understanding how you end up at the, uh, at, uh, the, the point of being an all-millennialist or a post-millennialist or a pre, what was the determining factor in that. And so all-millennialism uh, takes a figurative view of the kingdom, figurative view of the thousand years, and they kick Israel out of the picture. Uh, they believe in replacement theology. Fourteen, all millennialism means that there is no millennium, that the thousand years is figurative, not literal. So that's a simple definition, but that's pretty accurate, basic definition of what all millennialism is about. So several people said, you know, I grew up in a church that never mentioned the rapture. So I said that was because it was an all-millennial uh, church in theology. Uh, they don't teach the rapture because the rapture is not really that big a deal. Fifteen, all-millennialism teaches that the kingdom of God began when Jesus ascended into heaven. When he got to heaven, he sat down on his throne. And the church began on the day of Pentecost. The church is the kingdom. The church is the kingdom. According to the view. And continues on through today for an unknown period of time. So let me give you a little history. Uh, Rome, the Roman Empire with emperors, ended basically about 410 A.D. Now there was, it strung on a little bit longer than that, but 410 is when the city of Rome uh, was invaded by the uh, Vandals, a tribe in North Africa, and the Goths, the, uh, the Visigoths from the German area and they were groups all over raiding each other and so Rome got uh, sacked, conquered, basically destroyed. By the way, I, I learned an interesting thing reading and studying this. The Vandals, this, this tribe, uh, they were sort of vicious and they didn't come in and simply conquer, they just destroyed everything. And that's where we get the word vandalism from the, the Vandals as a group of uh, people. And so Basically, what began to be taught was the gods, little g-s, got mad, upset, when Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. Therefore, the gods, little g and s, they worked and conquered Rome. Before then, Rome was the imperial city Inconquerable. Nobody could ever take it. It was going to last forever and ever and ever and ever. But the Goths and the Vandals came in, <clears throat> destroyed it, and so generally everybody that wasn't a believer said that's because the gods got upset at Constantine because Rome became a Christian city, the capital of Christianity as it were. And so uh, Augustine was alive then, and that's what prompted him to write The City of God. And uh, that came out five years later, this book, 
that uh, it was the city of God, and, but the ultimate city of God is going to be in heaven, and he writes his whole history, uh, and it became the main theological work for almost every individual for years and years, even down till today. There was another uh, early church father named Tychonius, and he wrote a book entitled The Rules of Interpreting the Bible. And it was a book that Augustine used. And the seventh rule, biblical prophecies will always be fulfilled spiritually, not physically. Physical illustrations are used because of our inability to understand spiritual truths. So that was the basic rule of this individual. All prophecy that's written in a physical way is only written in a physical way because we're physical people. We can't understand spiritual truth. But every prophecy, physical description of prophecy always needs to be interpreted spiritually, not physically, not literally. So Augustine took that rule to heart, and that's how he, uh, what he used when he wrote the book, City of God. <clears throat> Number 16, they teach that the church has replaced Israel. That God is reigning on earth today through the church. So a fairly well-known pastor of this huge church, 35,000 people in number, he had a saying. I listened to a lot of his sermons, read a lot of his stuff, great stuff. One of the sayings he would say is, the church is the hope of the world. Great statement. Church is the hope of the world. And as you begin reading and studying about some of his underlying theology, he is a very staunch all-millennialist in the sense that the church is the kingdom of God. And we've taken all the promises of Israel. We are the people of God, and we are God's method. 17, all-millennialism spiritualizes the thousand years, and they also spiritualize the tribulation. So when was the tribulation? Oh, World War I, World War II, Vietnam War. All these various things that happened in the past, all of that was the tribulation. Seven years is not literal. And all those bad things you read about in the book of Revelation, uh, they're not real literal. They just means bad things, trials, tribulations. And it's been happening for the last 2,000 years. And so we're in the middle of the kingdom and we're in the middle of the tribulation all at the same time. All millennialism spiritualizes the thousand years and they also spiritualize the tribulation into being all the trials that have happened over the years. Now some all millennialists, not all, but some will uh, move to a specific event. 18, preterism is the name of the view that teaches that the tribulation happened in 70 A.D., with the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. So they basically teach that all prophecy has been fulfilled. There is no prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled except the end of time. When everything is ended, sinners go to hell, Christians go to heaven. The end of the story, we don't know what happens after that. But tribulation is gone, happened. Every prophecy 
and the revelation has already taken place. There is nothing left, and now we're just living life uh, and, and waiting until the end comes. 19, all millennialism teaches that at some point in the future, Jesus will come back. And this earth as we know it will be over and all believers will go to heaven. Pretty simple view, really. Jesus came, died on the cross, went to heaven. Now we're winning people to Jesus. And then at some point it's going to be over and we all go to heaven. That's basically the uh, eschatology of all millennialism. 20, all millennialism rolls all of the three judgments. As you read the Bible, you'll see that there are three distinct judgments. Sheep and goat judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, and the great white throne judgment. Uh, there could be two more that are maybe a little different, but basically three. They roll them into one at the end of time. Use say those words don't mean that they're different, uh, just different expressions of it. So there's one judgment at the end. Basically, they determine whether you're going to hell or heaven. All millennials don't make a big deal out of the judgment seat of Christ, don't make a big deal out of rewards. And so it's pretty much future simple. 21, post-millennialism. It's very similar to all millennialism. In that they believe that we are in the kingdom now. The kingdom is not literal. They also are the same in that they believe that Israel is no longer part of God's plan, replacement theology. Most of the Puritans were post-millennialists. John Wesley was post-millennialist. John Calvin was a post-millennialist. And so the key thing about them, distinctive doctrine, number 22, post-mill, I did that one so I didn't have to pronounce that millennialism quite so much, Post-mill teaches that the church is conquering the world, that when we have made the world Christian, Jesus will come back. So post, that means at the end of. So we're in the kingdom now, and when we as the church have done our job and have saved everybody in the world and have transformed education and business and industry, all of it being Christian operated and run by godly biblical principles, then at some point Jesus will come back when we've done our thing. And so it's a positive thinking kind of a, uh, a theology in the sense that we're, we're going to win, we're going to conquer the world, we're going to save everybody. Uh, and so they take verses like, go and make disciples of all the world, of every person. And then Jesus comes back. 23, instead of teaching that things get worse and worse, they teach that things will get better and better. I kind of like it myself, <laughs> that sounds good. I guess I would just say, when's that going to happen anyway? That better and better part. Post-mill teaching, number 24, was very popular in growing from the founding of our country until World War I. 
And so much of the motivation in the early parts of our country, the pilgrims and the, and the pioneers, all was the sense of conquering the world, conquering the world for Jesus. World War I kind of messed the theology up because uh, it was a bad war, a war and uh, so it kind of went down for a while. Number 25, it, it, it got going, uh, going again and then World War II came along and kicked it in the head. This is not what's supposed to happen as we conquer the world and make it a better and better and better place. And so it really messed with their theology. Twenty-six, the year 2020 has just about killed it off. You've got to look around now pretty hard to find anybody that's a post-millennialist because it's just not reality. Things aren't getting better. Things are getting worse and getting worse by the day. So we're going to switch now to the third view, premillennialism, 27, is the preferred theological view by those who hold to a literal interpretation of the Bible. Premillennial means that Jesus will come back before the millennium. And it's a literal thousand years. Premillennialists believe in a literal seven-year tribulation period. Now, premillennialism, because of the fact that it's literal, is considerably more detailed and complicated because you have the tribulation. That's, that's a, a given. That's a fact. That's literal. You have the millennium, thousand years. You have the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is still the children of God, still the people of God. There's still a promised land. They will live in the promised land during the kingdom. And David will rule from Jerusalem as well as Jesus. And so there's all the details, all from the book of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and the book of Revelation. There's so much detail there, and they take it literally, and so there's a lot more involved. Um, 28, the premillennial view holds very strongly to the separation of the church and Israel. Israel is the chosen people of God for all eternity. So if you ask the question or somebody asks you the question, what is a premillennialist? That's a person who believes that you interpret the Bible literally and they believe, this is the most distinguishing characteristic of premillennialism, that Israel remains the children of God, the people of God. Israel will be saved at the end. All Israel will be saved, and they will literally reign on the earth in the promised land that God promised them way back uh, to Abraham. That that hasn't ended, that God keeps his covenant, doesn't break his word, doesn't change his mind. And so they remain uh, the people of God, and they will live on this planet for a thousand years in what is now called Israel, Canaan, Palestine, literally. 28, the premillennial view holds very strongly to the separate... Oh, I'll give you that one. Uh, 29, they teach a literal seven-year tribulation called the Day of the Lord. We're going to have a lesson just on that topic. The Day of the Lord, the tribulation, when is it, what's it look like?
So for some of you, this is like information you've not heard before, and it's a bit confusing. So when you walk out, just walk out with this information. I believe the Bible is to be interpreted literally. I believe the nation of Israel is the people of God, children of God. And today as we watch things unfolding in the news, it's all part of the key of what God's doing. And if you want to uh, know what your, your uh, title is, you are a premillennialist. Uh, or you can just say, I'm one of those people who believes that Israel is the children of God, the people of God, and that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to rule on this earth literally for a thousand years. That's pretty much the, the sum of it. 30, most people who believe in a premillennial view also hold to a pre-tribulational rapture view. That's not required. That's just when you look at theologians generally, that would be... Uh, so we have the, the seven-year tribulation and the thousand-year millennium. Literal kingdom, thousand years on the earth. Jesus comes down, rules on this planet in Jerusalem, and Israel is there as a people and the church is there as the people as the bride of Christ. And so the question now is, do we get raptured at the end of the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, at the beginning of the tribulation? We're still premillennial because Jesus comes back at the end of this tribulation. And so it's a matter of whether we go to heaven, stay there for seven years, come back with Jesus, we're in the first, or we're in the first three and a half years, then go to heaven, then come back with Jesus when he establishes his kingdom, or we go through the whole tribulation, we get raptured, and Jesus, we meet Jesus, and then we come right back with him and establish his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. So the millennium, the rule of Christ, the rule of the church, Israel, all the same. Uh, the tribulation, uh, the rapture view just depends where it happens. We'll look at that. We'll spend a whole uh, a class lesson looking on that. Uh, 31 pre-male people hold to at least three different judgments of God. We'll have a whole lesson on that one. The great white throne judgment, if I were to give you a quiz, I'd say, where's that? Here we have the tribulation, we have the rapture there, either beginning, middle, or end. Then we have the thousand-year reign of Jesus. Where's the great white throne judgment? It's at the end. How about the judgment seat of Christ? It's at the beginning. How about the sheep and goat judgment? It's at the beginning. Who's in the great the judgment seat of Christ? Only Christians. Who's in the great white throne judgment? Only lost people. And who's in the sheep and goat judgment? All those who make it through the tribulation alive. A simple view. We'll spend a whole lesson on that one. 32, Jesus will return with his church after the tribulation, set up the kingdom of God on a literal earth, Jesus will return, and there'll be horses involved. Cool. The army of God, Jesus, we come back. I'm hoping that that horse thing is figurative. <laughs> I'm really hoping that it's Harley Davidson's. I hate horses. Jesus will return with his church after the tribulation, set up the kingdom of God on a literal earth with Jerusalem being the capital of the world. This kingdom will last a literal 1,000 years. That's a basic summary view, statement view of what premillennialism is.
33, because of using a strict literal method of interpreting Scripture, strict literal method of interpreting Scripture, what's literal is literal, figurative uh, metaphor typology is allowed, but it's easily identified. But we use the literal interpretation whenever that's obvious the case. Because we do that, Scripture, the premillennial view, is very much more detailed and complicated than either of the other views. So if I give you a quiz and say, what's all millennialism? You could tell me. When I say, what's post-millennialism? You could tell me. When I say, what's premillennialism? You could tell me. What basically determines whether they end up in the Atlantic or the Pacific? I think you could tell me. Now, panmillennialists, what are they? Panmillennialists, they don't know which of the views is correct. They don't care which of the views is correct. They just believe that it'll all pan out in the end. So uh, you won't find that one in major theology works. That's just a fr fun one added there for those of you. I don't care. So you're a pan-millennialist if you don't care uh, much. You're just going to, I'm just going to wait and see. And uh, so, you know, if that's an option, Two-thirds of the Bible is prophecy. Two-thirds of that is talking about the kingdom. If it doesn't matter a whole lot, uh, why read it? Why study it? Try to, why try to figure it out? Uh, it's obviously important, and I think one of the key things is important that we interpret the Bible correctly in the right way because it affects uh, all the rest of our theology as well. And you, um, today we have what we call conservative churches and liberal churches. Uh, conservative churches say, Bible is our standard, it's our rule book. It determines truth and error. It determines what is right and what's wrong. Liberal uh, churches say, the Bible was written a long time ago, and the culture that they wrote by really wasn't the culture we have now, so we have to kind of apply things a little bit differently, and some things that were wrong then aren't wrong now. So once you adopt that view of, ah, it's pretty much whatever you want to make true is true, whatever you want to make wrong is wrong. And so when we hold to the Bible is the Word of God, we read it, we interpret it literally. That's how we determine what is truth and what is error, what is true, what is not true, what is right, what is wrong. And so this inter interpretation hermeneutical principle is critically important, and it deals with everything, not just prophecy. All right, I hope that wasn't too complicated and confusing. I labored over this one. I try to throw a few jokes in there, you know, to lighten it up a little bit. So, okay, some questions? Here's one right here. Can you talk about the sheep and goat judgment 
a little bit more and if people died in the trib, what, tribulation, what happens? And people who lived in the tribulation, what happens at the sheep and goat? I'm going to do a whole class lesson okay. on that okay. topic. All right. Yeah, there's a lot more information, the tribulation, what it looks like, the kingdom, what it looks like, and what we'll be doing. Uh, one of the key points about the kingdom, the thousand-year reign, is efficient, is going to be awesome. And I'm going to be given responsibility of being charged, uh, in charge of that. So, just so you know, in case you wanted that job, it's already taken. Pardon? Why are we riding motorcycles? Oh, yeah, I'll get off the motorcycle to fish. That's just when we go from heaven to earth. Once we get here, chuck the motorcycle. Not as much a question, but you, you've already hit it. But a lot of people might say pan-millennialism or whatever, where who really cares, it'll all work out. <clears throat> if we hold that view, now we're taking the same position the Jews did when Christ entered on Palm Sunday, and he rebuked them for not knowing the times. Don't put yourself in that situation. Right. Yep. Good point. Thank you. Anybody else? So, it's now eight minutes after 11. Is Pastor Mike in here? <laughs> Pastor Mike, are you in here? Where are you at? Raise your hand. Not in here? All right. When you see him, let him know that I got done seven minutes early. All right. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. I do pray that uh, as we look into it and study it, it won't be a, a source of frustration and confusion, but we would uh, want to know exactly what you are wanting to communicate to us and what is truth. And uh, Lord, it would grant us great strength to know that you are sovereign, you are in charge, that you've planned it out and it's working according to plan. And uh, we look forward to seeing all that's going to happen in the days ahead, especially, Lord, as we rule and reign with you in our glorified bodies. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.